pumped because I get to speak on Psalm 139. And before I do, let me just real quick briefly remind you that the children can now be dismissed to Sunday school. So, see ya. Bye-bye. Psalm 139 is where we are going to be today, <clears throat> and unfortunately, because of time and the permittance of time, if that's, if that's a phrase, I don't have time to go through, really dive deep, but I, I am going to uh, do it section by section, sort of. Uh, so what I'd like to do is just start out with Psalm 139 and go section by section, and a very quick overview of Psalm 139 looks something like this. The psalm starts with the first section, verses 1 through 6, and that details God's intimate knowledge of his kids. And then verses 7 through 12 describe how there is no place where we could ever wander out of God's presence. The next section, verses 13 to 16, beautifully and poetically paints the picture of God's power for us through his ability to form and to knit together the very fabric of human life. And uh, those three sections are probably where we're going to have to stop. We won't have time to get through all of them. But then to round this whole thing out real quick, verses 17 and 18 proclaim how delightful and amazing God's knowledge really is. And after that, we see in verses 19 to 22, uh, David reaffirms his loyalty to God. And then we see in verses 23 and 24, it serves as a nice bookend uh, with verse 1. And this is David's invitation for God to continue, to continue to examine and uh, analyze his innermost being, his heart, and uh, um, that he might purge or, or cleanse anything in him that might hinder him from, how does it close, uh, walking in the way everlasting. And so we'll start there in, in Psalm 139, verse 6, where he says, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. Verse 3 says, You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. You hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Now, as we go through these three sections of the psalm that we're focusing on today, there is a single word for each section that I think does a pretty good job of summing up each section. <clears throat> so what we see here in verses 1 through 6, how David is actually describing God's, the word is, I believe if I'm pronouncing it right, omniscience. See, now that tells me that you all probably don't know the word, maybe. Omniscience. Thank you, Julie. Okay, maybe you should preach this. Omniscience. That's a fancy word for me. All right. It's got more than two syllables, bro. Watch out. What does omniscience mean? What does this mean? Well, for those of us who have grown up in church, you might have heard this word before. And if you know this word, then you probably know the other two words. So don't give it away, but the other two words to describe the next two sections. But what this word omniscience means is it comes from two separate words. Omni, meaning all, and science, which means knowledge. So God has, possesses all knowledge. What these verses describe is God's omniscience, or to put it away, he knows everything. He knows it all. Uh, God is truly a know-it-all. 
but we're happy to be around him. <laughs> and this is highlighted in verses 1 to 3, where he says, you know all of these things, O God. And then we see David gives us an example of how he knows everything in verse 4, where he says, even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all together. So God even knows the words on our tongues before we ever say a statement, before we ever sing a song, before we ever even ask a question. And so let me just give you this quick thought. If we profess to be Christians, to be children of the living God, and we say Christ is king, then shouldn't he also be Lord over our mouths? Now, I'm preaching to myself. Okay, I'm preaching to myself because I love jokes. I do, I love jokes. For example, if you look in the back, you'll see my stepladder. Unfortunately, I never knew my real ladder. <laughs> that took a second, some of y'all are. <laughs> For those of you watching online, everybody's going, uh, when is the other guy back? When, is it, when are we getting back in Genesis? <clears throat> but I love jokes. And I'm preaching to myself because I admit that sometimes my jokes can border on the line and sometimes they can get off color. And so when I say these things, look, look, I'm guilty of this. And so I was like, hey, you know what I have an issue with? I'll just put that in there. Maybe somebody else is, in, maybe I'm not alone in this. <clears throat> As followers of Jesus, though, who represent his name, who represent his church and his kingdom, Shouldn't this, if God knows our every thought and word before we say it, shouldn't this give us pause and consider the language that we use in front of those who are in unbelief and lost, who are watching us and who are judging us? And they're watching us more than you probably realize. God knows our every word, so let's think about this, especially when we are in the midst of our lost friends and our unbelieving neighbors. So verse 5, moving on, we're going to move quick here. He says, you hem me in behind and before and lay your hand upon me. Now, another translation, uh, instead of the word hem, H-E-M there, he uh, puts hedge. You hedge me in. And all throughout scripture, we see this word hedge is often used to hedge in a vineyard, a very valuable vineyard. And what that means is that they would put sometimes a, a wall or a barricade up so that it would keep people out from getting into the vineyard and stealing whatever it was. So this hedge acted as a way, or this hemming in uh, would act as a way of protecting. So what this really means is that you could think of this, this hem here in verse 5 as a barricade or an encirclement. God has encircled us within his protective care, just like a priceless vineyard. To help give us a picture of this, in maybe more of a negative sense, however, Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, Jesus is standing and he's looking out over Jerusalem, and he's foretelling of the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70 uh, by the Roman army that's going to come in and just level the place. And, he's, and he says, here's what's going to happen. They're going to surround Jerusalem. They're going to surround her. They're going to encircle her. And they will hem her in. Luke 19, verse 43. They will hem her in on every side. So that kind of gives us an idea as to how God, though, God in his protective care, hems us in. 
Now, here's a question. <clears throat> in this first section, verses 1 to 6, in which we are describing God's omniscience, his total, complete knowledge of everything, why is verse 5 smack dab right in the middle of it? And I'll tell you, I think it's because of this reason here. It's because it is placed here to serve as a reminder that nothing happens to you, nothing happens to me, nothing happens to our loved ones that God doesn't know about. What does that mean? It means that God's not surprised. God is not surprised by the doctor's bad health report. God is not surprised by that car accident. God is not surprised by the letter from the bank saying, hey, I'm sorry, but, but you're in foreclosure. God's not surprised by any of that. God is omniscient which means that he is not surprised. And if he is not surprised, that means that he can be prepared. God is prepared. And if God is prepared, that means he's ready. And if you're ready, that typically means that you have a plan. And for those of us who are children of God, who have uh, put our faith in Jesus, we understand that God has a plan for us to give us a future and a hope. But the question is, why does God permit things, if he hems us in behind and before, why does God sometimes permit things to slip through the hem that he has laid out for us? In Job 37, 16, Job's friends ask him, he says, do you know the balancings of the clouds, the wondrous works of him who is perfect in knowledge? That word perfect there is this Hebrew word tamam. And what this word means, it doesn't just mean, hey, his knowledge is accurate, like he's not wrong about stuff. What that really means is that, yes, he's accurate, but he's also complete in his knowledge. He knows how everything began, and he also knows how everything will finish. So even if he told you that he permits that which he hates, even if he told you that he permits that which he hates to accomplish that which he loves, as the speaker once said, we still wouldn't understand. We still would not understand. Because even if our understanding was 100% complete, accurate, it still wouldn't be total. Even if it was accurate, it wouldn't be complete. We still wouldn't understand, which is why I'm thankful for verse 6, because David acknowledges this. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It's, it's too high. I can't attain it. I can't attain it. I can't grasp it. I can't understand it. And I don't know, but this is what we're left with. I don't know, but I trust you, and I trust you because I know that I will never be outside of the presence of your everlasting care. Why? Because, well, let's look at the next section, section number two. We've looked at God's omniscience is all knowledge, so now let's look at verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit, or where shall I flee from your presence? Verse 8, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. And real quick, a side note there, as far as the word Sheol there, it literally just means the place of the dead. Just kind of the afterlife. Now, it doesn't, it doesn't refer to what we think of as hell, which is in the Greek, in the New Testament, is called Gehenna. No, what David is actually just saying here is that, God, you are present everywhere on this side of heaven and you are present on that side of heaven there is no place where he is not and we move on he says if i take 
the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea. Even there your hand shall lead me and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day for darkness is as light with you. So this second section describes God's omnipresence. He is in all places. And now due to verse 7, uh, where we, David uses the word flee, some have suggested that maybe that suggests a, uh, or that implies a guilty conscience on David's part. Where can I flee from your presence in verse 7? But I don't think so. I, I, I don't catch that from this psalm because the overall tone of the psalm is one of celebration, one of acknowledging and praising God for who he is. And so I don't, I don't get that he's got a, a guilty conscience here. Uh, what this section is, is David acknowledging that there isn't a place where he can ever escape from God's comfort and God's care. That God's care for him will find him wherever he goes. Last week we sang a song called Graves in the Gardens. Some of you all might know it, some of you all might remember it from last week. I didn't write it. <laughs> it's a good song. In the second verse... There's a line that says, there's not a place where your mercy and grace won't find me again. And that's what David is talking about here. There's not a place where I can go where your mercy and grace will not seek me out. And because God is omnipresent, what does that mean? It means that we will never be alone. You will never be left on your own. And what a comfort that is. You are not alone. I am not alone. And I am not left on my own. And let me add this. Let me add this quick point here. Uh, yesterday I was outside. I was, I was uh, throwing the football with uh, my boys. And they were shouting stuff at me. And there was a good amount of space between us in the yard. And I was like, I don't know, I, I don't know what they're saying. And, uh, and so when we finally got inside the house, we went inside the house. I got closer to them. I got within their presence. And you know what? I could hear them too loud. I was like, whoa, dudes, I need you to just bring it down a bit, okay? I can hear them clearly. Why? Because I'm within their presence. If God is omnipresent, which he is, then that should give us that added confidence that God is not distant, God is not far off, he is not hard of hearing, but he's always within earshot of our prayers. And we can pray, and God hears us clearly. God wants us to be a praying people. God wants us, y'all, to pray. And one last thing. If God is omnipresent everywhere, and he is, truly is everywhere, then we should probably keep this in mind. Uh, turn over real quick to Genesis 39, please, before we move on to our last and final section. Genesis 39, what we see here is Joseph and for those of you who don't know the story of Joseph, Joseph was sold into slavery by his brothers and they took him off to Egypt. Joseph uh, was blessed. God showed him favor in everything that he set out to do. And he ends up working his way up into, uh, his name is Potiphar. And he's a pretty higher up in the government in Egypt. And Joseph has been given basically control over the whole house. God has shown Joseph uh, he's shown him favor and, and everything that he's done. <clears throat> and so everything's going great for Joseph. Except one thing. <laughs> except one thing, and that's Potiphar's wife. Okay? Now, Potiphar's wife, for you ladies, 
is not someone that you should aspire to become like, uh, to put it mildly. But I will say, I was thinking uh, that there is one redeeming quality of Potiphar's wife, okay? And, and something that you, maybe you guys should take note of, okay? Y'all single ladies, all the single ladies? Uh-oh, uh-oh, come on. Okay? There is one thing that Potiphar's wife did do well that I thought that's pretty good. And you know what it was? She desired a godly man. <laughs> she wanted a godly man. So ladies, find yourself and desire a godly... You listening? Find yourself a godly man. Desire a godly man. Everything else Potiphar's wife does, just, just do the opposite of that, okay? And this is where we find po uh, Joseph and Potiphar's wife in chapter 39. She has now, this is one of the things you don't want to do, ladies, okay? She has now thrown herself at Joseph. And Joseph says, whoa, 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 whoa. Joseph says, this is his, this is his response to Potiphar's wife. Uh, verse 8, Genesis 39, verse 8. But he refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me, my master has no concern about anything in the house. And he has put everything that he has in my charge. And verse 9 says, He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Okay, now we might think after he just listed all of the benefits that he gained from working in Potiphar's house that he might say, how can I do this great wickedness and sin against Potiphar? But that's not what Joseph says here. What Joseph says is God, because we have to remember the context and the historical, the historical setting that he's in. And back in the ancient uh, Near East, in Egypt at that period of time, committing adultery was a very big no-no. It was a very big no-no. It was considered to be a huge sin to commit adultery. And typically, I think that Potiphar really didn't want to, um, really didn't want to lose Joseph. I think Potiphar was probably blessed because of Joseph. And I think that was one of the reasons why Joseph didn't get uh, the death penalty. Because committing adultery or attempted by a slave, you, you, you just go get hung. And so this offense was very big. But even so, this is where we take our cue from Joseph. It didn't matter to Joseph where he lived, whether he was a foreigner or a native in the land. No, we see that Joseph, more than anything else, is particularly concerned with the fact that he lived and always lived in the presence of God. You see, when we ask God for forgiveness, it doesn't matter whether, regardless of whether or not you did this against them or, or you said that about them, it doesn't matter uh, uh, because however you've missed the mark, we committed that offense in the very presence of God Almighty, the creator of heaven and earth. And so it doesn't matter, we still ask God for forgiveness, which, and I'll add this, he stands ready to give. He is ready to give. I've been on the receiving end more times than I'd like to admit, so I'm not going to admit it to you all, but he stands ready to give forgiveness and mercy. He is rich and abundant in mercy, and I thank God for that. 
So we've seen that God is omniscient. He's all-knowing, and, he, and only he knows and understands why he allowed that which he hates to slip through the hem that he has set around us. I don't know, I don't understand it, but he, only he does, and that's verses 1 through 6. We've seen that God is omnipresent, he is not distant, he hears our prayers, and uh, because of his omnipresence, because he is truly in all places, we should conduct ourselves as such, right? Hey man, the king's in the room, straighten up, you know, verses 7 through 12. And so now we look at our third and final section here, back in Psalm 139, verses 13 to 16. He says, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you, and I was being made in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw my unformed substance, in your book were written every one of them the days that were formed for me when as yet there was none of them and i think this third section is bridged to the previous second section because david begins this section with four which is a fancy way of saying because so what's that for therefore well, I think in order to find that out, we have to back up to verse 11 there in section 2 again. He says, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night. Even the darkness, verse 12 says, is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you, because you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. So listen, if we got any pregnant ladies here, okay, if, uh, and I know that we had some pregnant ladies here. And uh, we might have some ladies that are planning on getting pregnant, right? That's good, right? Dad, mom's good, right? Okay, good. Woo. Let me just tell you, pregnant ladies, <laughs> God is present and active in your womb right now, knitting together your baby in the very form and shape that will bring him the most glory. And I'm telling you, it's important that he receives the most glory because that is for our benefit. That's for our benefit when God receives all the glory. And you should be thankful that he is doing so, that he is the one knitting your baby together in your room because he is the only one that possesses the power, the power, the divine, eternal power to do so. And that is our third word for this third and final section. God is omnipotent. Omnipotence. All power. And we see this on full display in God's creation. Romans 1 verse 20 says this, for his invisible attributes, namely specifically what he's saying is his omnipotence, his eternal power have been clearly perceived, have been clearly understood ever since the creation of the world. God's omnipotence, his eternal power is on full display in creation. And none more so than in the creation of man. A masterpiece. A masterpiece representing God's power and creativity is on full display when we hold that tiny, fragile 
newborn baby, when we hold Theodore, little baby Theodore, later on here in a minute, God's power and creativity is on full display. And we, <laughs> what a privilege it is to hold a little baby in our arms, the, the, the display of God's power. And why are these verses, 13 to 16, a more striking display of God's omnipotence, his eternal power, more than anything else in creation? When he's describing how man has been knitted together? I, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious if you know Genesis 1, verse 26, because man is the only, is the only creation out of all creation that is made in the very image of God. Now, I don't have time to go through all of the wonderful complexities that is the human body of God's creation. I could. I could go through all 206 bones and how they perfectly inter interact with the 369 muscles, the eye, the ears, the mouth, how all of these things work together beautifully, how God has just, in his power and his wisdom, uh, built the human body. I, I, was, I think I was supposed to be done 45 minutes ago, so we'll, just very quickly, let's just look at how David recorded this. Starting again here, in verse 11, we see, if I say, again, we've got to get our, our uh, uh, running head start here. If I say, surely, in verse 11, the darkness shall cover me and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. Because you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, O God, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. What is going on here? If we really analyze this text, it would seem as if verse 15 should, should flow out of verse 13. Not verse 14. It seems like 13 should go right into 15. But instead we've got verse 14 just sandwiched right in here. And what's, what's David doing? He's been pondering and he's been meditating on God's omniscience in verses 1 through 6. He's been meditating and pondering upon God's omnipresence, 7 to 12. And now we see he is now pondering upon God's power on display in creation, namely his power behind the creation of man-made in his image. And he is thinking about these truths of God. It's as if David just has this impromptu type of praise and worship session and he just he's compelled he can't hold it in anymore and so he just bursts forth in praise and he says I praise you oh God David can't hold back his worship anymore and so he explodes in adoration and he says I praise you I worship you God why and he gives us all in the verse 14 he gives us the reason why because he says I am a work of your hands and the work of your hands is wonderful. And here's the thing is that he says, and my soul knows it very well. You see, when you understand, when you know it very well, that you are a wonderful work of the all-powerful, omnipotent creator God, made in his very own image, then you will be compelled to worship. You will burst forth in praise when you have a right view of creation because it points you and directs you to the creator. Now statistically, 
I don't want to veer off too much here, but statistically, we've got more than one person in here that probably struggles with their self-esteem. But I'm just going to tell you this. If you're here and you're hearing this, well, yeah, that means that you're here. And if you're here, that means that you were made. And if you were made, that means you were created. And if you were created, that stands to reason that you were a work of someone's hands. You were a work of God. Now, what is God's works again? Oh, where is it? Wonderful. God's works are wonderful. So, real quick, before I veer off too far, like I said, let me just give you these two verses, okay? Because if you're struggling here, I want to help you. I want to give you something, okay? I want to give you some truth. Now, not necessarily value and worth are the same thing all the time, but that's okay. Like, for example, I have a 2007 Buick Rainier. She's a little rusty, but she gets me from point A to point B. The Rainier is valuable to me, but I don't think I can sell her for, for what she's worth to me. <laughs> Meaning, it's valuable, but it ain't worth that much. But that's okay, I just want to cover all the bases here. So, let me give you this, okay? Ephesians 2.10, for we are his workmanship. Some translations, instead of workmanship, some translations say masterpiece. We are his masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus, for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. There's your value. Masterpiece. There's your value. Let me give you another one. Knowing that you were ransomed. You were ransomed. You were bought. You were paid for. You were redeemed. Knowing that you were ransomed, not with perishable things, not with temporary things like silver or gold, you see, I'm not going to get all William Devane on you here, okay, and start trying to tell you, sell you gold. Anybody know who that is? Hi, I'm William Devane. And if you're, no, nothing? Kind of. Thank you. Okay, the whites get it. Great. <laughs> but you were ransomed, bought, not with temporary things like silver and gold, but here's the thing. Bought with the precious blood of Christ. Praise God. And there's your worth. There's your value, and there's your worth. Now, I'm not trying to turn this into a self-esteem-boosting pep talk, but I'll just say this. I got those two truths about my value and my worth from the Bible. So if you're struggling, that's where I got that. And this, this is, this is full of, of truth about who you are in Christ. And so if you're struggling today, try reading your Bible and soaking in some of these truths, okay? But what I want to do, uh, let me get back to Psalm 139, because what I want to do is I want us to be compelled to worship like David was, who understood God's omniscience, omnipresence, and omnipotence. We ought to be compelled like he was to burst forth in praise. Why? Because, yeah, David has a right view of himself. David understood his value and his worth. He didn't, look, he didn't find it in anybody else except his God. But is this what causes him to burst forth in praise as we see in verse 14? Was it a healthy self-esteem? A healthy self-esteem makes us go, oh, I feel good about myself, and so now I have to praise. No. No, no. Because he has an accurate view of God's creation, that means he has a right view of himself. 
And when you have a right view of yourself, you have a right view of yourself before God. David doesn't praise God because David realized that David was so great and that David was so worthy. No, after David considers who God is for these first 12 verses as we have just done, no, he says he praises God because God is so great and God is so worthy and his soul knows it well. He examines the creation and says, wow, how much more wonderful and powerful must the creator be? And I can't hold it in anymore. I've got to worship. I have to praise. So David says, look at the creator. And he has a right view of creation. He says, you are all knowing. And I cannot even imagine. I cannot begin to grasp your knowledge. He says, you are everywhere. And because of that, I know I am never outside of the boundaries of your love and your care. And he says, you are all powerful and your power is on full display in creation. And at this point, I must praise you. I must give you the worship. That's what David does. And I'm excited because we get to hold little baby Theodore here in a minute. And so if I can, if I can invite David and Cassie and any family members that want to come up. Pastor, I believe you're up here. We want to dedicate, we want to commit baby Theodore to the Lord in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit today. This is David and Cassie. You know, David, I know that you know this because I know that we've told you this, but man, we've been praying for you. We've been praying for you a very long time. Handshake. Yeah. Keep it, keep it real. you that I don't usually hold them while I dedicate them to God. <laughs> I'm going to read a couple of verses that we had. Psalm 139, verse 16, your eyes saw my unformed substance, in your book was written every one, every part of them. Even the days formed for me before there was any of them. How precious to me are your thoughts, O God, and how vast is the sum of them you have for me. Today we dedicate Theodore Garten to the Father in heaven who made him gave him to us Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ we dedicate Theodore to you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit Amen, high five dude <laughs> Would you stand We appreciate these parents we've heard from Cameron, who spoke of the influence of his parents in his faith and in his conversion. 
We heard a study of Psalm 139 and how God knits the child together in, in the womb. And now we have David and Cassie who's come to dedicate Theodore today to the God who made him. That he Only God is worthy of the kind of devotion that we would give our children to. So we praise God for our uh, David and Cassie, I want to conclude. We present Theodore's first Bible, and uh, that's the top here. <laughs> it's pretty small print there, bud. <laughs> but he'll have good eyes. Um, I want us to pray, conclude today by praying for David and Cassie and for Theodore. One concluding prayer. Would you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, we ask your blessing upon David. We pray for wisdom. We pray for discipleship toward Jesus. We pray for Cassie, for the grace and strength that every mother needs. And we pray for this precious and beautiful little boy, little Theodore, a gift of God. May your hand rest upon him from this day forward. May your angels ever be around him and guarding him, protecting him and keeping him from evil. And may your church rejoice at what you do in their lives in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Praise God. Let's hear it for Theodore today. Praise God. We're going to have our offering to, to finish the service today. So ushers, if you'll come. And uh, those of you who would like to worship with giving, we invite you to do so.